But in this moment, I would want to frame out for us a little bit of, um, again, our preaching philosophy at Northeast. Last week, we heard from Andrew Enders. Um, he's a congregant, and we're praying for them. They have just gone overseas to Lebanon for like 20 days, him and his whole family. And so they're there um, on the way, if not having... Uh, they, they might have arrived, actually. But they're traveling. They're gone. And they'll be there for a bit. All that to say... That's a voice in our congregation that speaks from a very unique perspective um, as someone who works in crew. And that's a value we have here. We want to be able to highlight and hear the voice of God communicating to us through all of us. And some of us through preaching, uh, some of us through the way that we do hospitality and other pieces. In this moment, I have the uh, privilege and honor of welcoming up Abby, my wife, Abby Sham, goodness gracious, I messed up our name. <laughs> Abby Sham, I'm super excited. Um, in the way that we get to hear today in uh, the service, we'll get to frame out some of where we've been in Advent. Again, we've go- been going through the genealogy, specifically through the, the women in the genealogy, which is already uh, a change in terms of how we might hear the Christmas story. So let us listen and be attentive and um, looking forward to the morning to come. who is married to your interim pastor, I just want to take a minute and say thank you. Um, Thank you to all of you who have volunteered, especially in the past couple of months, to make the ministries of Bethany Northeast happen. Um, To those of you who come early to set up, who tear down, who uh, do the sound, lead us in worship, um, hold really beautiful, safe, generative space for our kids. Um, who think thoughtfully about the ministry of racial justice and reconciliation, um, who pray for us, host the community meal, and uh, host space for us to come um, encounter Christ in the Eucharist. Um, And there's so many other ways that everyone pitches in, but I just want to say thank you. It means a lot to all of us. Um, To be the church isn't to be led by a single person. It's to be a people who belong to one another And it's to be people who um, come together to encounter Christ and help others encounter Christ, to let the kingdom of God become real in our community. Um, And many of you probably know that uh, there's a word called liturgy, and that's simply a fancy word for what we do on a Sunday morning when we worship. And liturgy means the work of the people. So this morning I come to you as a fellow congregant, someone who has only ever preached once before, Um, So be gracious. Um, But I come knowing that my voice, just like all of your voices, matter, just like Silas was saying. And I hope that maybe we hear more voices from the stage. But if not here, I hope that I get to experience your voice somewhere in the fabric of our community. So would you all join me in prayer before we read our scripture? Holy God. I thank you that we get to encounter you today and we get to encounter you together. Lord, would we hear your voice through this scripture? Would we become more like Jesus? Amen. So we're picking up where Andrew left us off last week and let us read from the Gospel of Matthew. This is Matthew 1, 5 through 6. Solomon was the father of Boaz, 
whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, the king. Now, this is just a small snippet of Christ's genealogy in the Gospel of Matthew. If we were to read the entire genealogy, it would feel very long, very laborious. Like, it's this person's the father of this person over and over again with some, this is the mother of this person. So you might be surprised to know that Matthew actually cuts out a few generations in Jesus' lineage. His version of the genealogy is not going for historical accuracy. Instead, it's doing something artistic, something playful and theological. He's highlighting people and stories from Israel's past that will speak to Christ's mission as the Messiah to the nations. And he's allowing these old stories to be infused with new meaning when read in light of the gospel. So since Matthew's doing something theological, something really purposeful, we want to make sure that we pay attention to the weird things that we see in this gospel and in this genealogy. One thing that's really strange is that Matthew, a gospel writer who is specifically highlighting Jesus as the king, he skips over six Jewish kings in Jesus' lineage, and instead he inserts five women. And one of these women is the the person that we are going to open ourselves up to today, the person that we're going to rest our gaze on, and that's Ruth. She's a divinely unexpected leader in Israel and becomes a foremother of our faith. So in case you haven't read the book of Ruth in a while, it's a really short book. It's only four chapters, but these four chapters really pack a punch In the first four verses alone, it covers the span of 10 years. So here's the context. There is a famine in Israel, and we like just zone in on this one family. It's Elimelech, Naomi, and their two sons. So they're experiencing incredible hunger, and they decide they have to leave their hometown of Bethlehem. So they head out, and they become refugees. And they land in the the land of Moab. And this is a significant part of the story because Israel and Moab are not friends. Um, We hear in the Exodus story that when the Israelites are leaving Israel, they are in the desert, they're hungry, they're confused, they're lost, and they encounter the Moabites and they ask for food. And the Moabite king sees just how many Israelites there are, and he says, no way. Like, there are way too many of you. You will eat everything we have. So they are denied hospitality. And in this denial of hospitality, plus a few other things that happen with the Moabites, um, we hear in Deuteronomy 23 that no Moabite is to be allowed to enter the household of Israel. Like, even to the 10th generation, Um, It even says that you should not seek a treaty of friendship with them as long as you live. So they seriously don't like the Moabites. But it's here that this Israelite family finds hospitality. So we're told that they settle down, and sadly, the father, Elimelech, dies pretty suddenly. Years go by. Naomi has her two sons to care for her. They marry Moabite women. 
um, they don't have children. And then 10 years into their time in Moab, uh, her two sons die. And it seems like they die pretty much um, around the same time. So it's this context of famine, of displacement, of death and poverty. This is where our story begins. So Naomi hears that the famine in Bethlehem has ended. So since she's alone, she's left with these two daughters-in-law, she decides to take them back to her hometown. But along the way, she stops, and she offers her daughters, Orpah and Ruth, a word of blessing and a word of freedom. Now remember in the sermon on Tamar, Silas talked about how in this time, marriage was not a covenant between two people, but it was a covenant between families. So in this time, if um, a woman would marry into a family, and then if her husband died, she would be remarried to a brother, to the next male kin. And this was a way to protect her and for the family to keep up their end of the covenant, but then also a way for the family line to continue. But this is a really unique situation. This is a woman of, or this is a family of three women in a foreign land. And this is unprecedented. It's unscripted. We don't see this anywhere else in scripture. And it's as if Naomi realizes that she can offer these two women a gift. A gift to break their obligation to a family that now only consists of her. A widow in a world that is very unkind to single women. So in a word of love, Naomi blesses her daughters. She says that their faithfulness to her and to her dead sons has been like the faithfulness of Yahweh. She asks that God would bless them as they have blessed her. Then she kisses Ruth and Orpah and they weep together. She urges them to leave her, but the girls refuse. She urges them once again to leave her because she has failed to keep the Leveret law. She has no more sons to offer them. The girls don't speak to her shame. They simply hold her and they weep with her. This is a heartbreaking moment. Naomi has just lost her two sons and now she's offering the remainder of her family a way forward without her. She does this out of love, but she also does this out of incredible sorrow and incredible shame. Her life has been touched by death and all she can see for her future is death. She declares that she's filled with bitterness and she'll even come to call herself Mara. She renames herself a name that means bitter. One daughter, Orpah, kisses Naomi and does what she asks. She leaves. The other daughter, Ruth, refuses to leave. And the story becomes the story of Ruth and Naomi. It's a story that will come to include many others, including Jesus, But anyone touched by the life of Ruth is so because of this crucial moment of faithful love. The story goes on with Naomi urging Ruth once again to leave her. And Ruth's response is such a powerful oath of love and faithfulness that we say it at our weddings. It's said in Jewish wedding ceremonies. Ruth says, don't urge me to abandon you, to turn back from following after you. Wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do this to me and more so if even death separates me from you.
After hearing this powerful oath, Naomi goes absolutely silent. The scripture even implies that they walk all the way to Bethlehem in silence. Now, what has just happened is astounding. And it's astounding for many reasons. But first, there are only two oaths in all of scripture made by women. One of these oaths is an oath of death. It's made by Jezebel, who oaths to kill the prophet Elijah. Now remember, Jezebel is a queen, um, and Elijah was calling out her abuses and the idolatry that she's fostering in the land. So she wanted him dead, and she oathed by the gods that she would kill him. Her oath was an oath of death. And the only other time a woman makes an oath in scripture is right here in Ruth. So don't miss this. One oath, Jezebel's, pursues death. And the other oath from Ruth defies death. Ruth's oath defies death by speaking life to someone who can't see anything but the lies of death. Naomi sees herself as utterly alone. She sees herself as someone who's failed her duties as a woman, and as someone whose family, whose livelihood, and whose very identity has died. And to this, Ruth says a defiant and a powerful no. She says, no, you are not alone. No, you have not failed as a woman. I am your daughter. No, you are enough. And no, you have enough. No, life can be sweet, even though all you can taste right now is bitterness. The book of Ruth is a quiet kind of book. There aren't flashy miracles. There isn't even a clear villain. But even though it's quiet, it's powerful. And its power is seen in the way that love and kindness change people's lives. It comes to change a whole community. Not only does Ruth put herself at great physical danger by joining her life to Naomi, but she completely breaks the mold and social norms of her time. Through her kindness, Ruth starts a small but powerful revolution. Remember, remember, this is a time when men dominate culture. It's a time when family protection was necessary for survival. But Ruth imagines another way of living in the world, a way where she and Naomi aren't dependent upon sons, aren't dependent upon husbands, She's reimagining and reinventing what a family can be. We might even say that she's seeing with the eyes of the creator, the God who never stops creating and who is not stuck in our social norms. And this is how one Hebrew scholar describes this quiet but powerful revolution that Ruth starts. She says, Ruth and the females of Bethlehem work as paradigms for radicality. Altogether, they were women in culture. They are women against culture, and they are women, women transforming culture. What they reflect, they challenge. And that challenge is a legacy of faith to this day for all who have ears to hear the stories of women in a man's world. Ruth and Naomi transform their community as they simply and they faithfully love one another. Earlier in the sermon series, Silas talked about how scripture can simultaneously open up words of comfort, words of conviction, and words of commission. Here, I think we're getting a little bit of all three. 
Death works so hard, so hard to make us believe that we're alone, that our work in the world is finished, that God is against us. These words of death hit us from all different angles all the time. But here's the word of comfort. The fullness of God is a joining presence, a presence that draws from different wells than that of death, of scarcity, or of violence. Ruth, a foremother of Christ, is a Christ figure to Naomi. Ruth's defiance of death in Naomi's life opens up an entirely new system of belonging, one that's not possessive, one that's not oppressive. And I don't know if you caught it, but Ruth says, Naomi, where you die, I will die. You won't be alone, even in death. Does this sound familiar? That reminds us, it's reminiscent of Christ, the one who only became the resurrection and the life, precisely by joining us in death. Ruth and Jesus both hear, see, and feel firsthand the mourning, oppression, and despair of those around them. They see where death is creeping in on people. And Matthew's genealogy is helping us to read these stories frontward and backward so that we can hear Christ in Ruth's words and we can see Christ following in the way of his foremother, Ruth. But Christ does what Ruth can't. God's loving kindness is so complete that when Jesus joins us in death, he actually breaks the power of death so that death never has the final words in our life. Ruth's small revolution of love is found in Christ's defiance of death for us. And the conviction might be something as simple as this. Love and kindness actually matter. Love changes our relationships. Love can change our communities. Love and kindness can actually change the world. To be people who follow Christ is to be like Ruth, to love in ways that defy the lies of death, to love in ways that make newness in the world possible. And this is our commission. But how do we live out a faith that refuses to listen to death? How can the faithful love of two widows in the ancient Near East actually transform our lives today? Have you ever believed the lies of death? I have. Growing up in the late 90s and early 2000s, um, I was formed by a very strong evangelical emphasis on finding God's one purpose for my life. And by the time I got to college, I still hadn't figured it out. And so I dabbled in a couple of theology classes and I found that I was just in love with the subject. And I caught the attention of a few theology professors um, and they really took me under their wing. They mentored me and discipled me. They empowered me to do things I never ever thought I could do. And through their help, I figured out God's plan for my life. I was going to become a professor of patristics. So this is a fancy term for just teaching and studying early church history. I wanted to spend my entire life thinking about big ideas, learning about a history that I had never heard of until I got to college. And I wanted to spend my life pouring myself into students just like my 
professors had poured themselves into me. I wanted to be an empowering presence. So I had the plan. I just needed to figure out how to get there. Um, and grad school, doing doctoral work is expensive. So I worked so hard in college to make sure that I could get a scholarship to a really good school. And I got it. I got into a school that a lot of people want to get into, and I got in on a full ride, and I thought I was set. Like, this is it. Um, And I get to school in the fall, super naive, just like this little evangelical ready to change the world. And I am shocked. Like, I'm not ready for what I'm about to experience. And it ends up being one of the hardest years of my life. So hard that I realize, like, this is not working. I, I love what I'm studying, but I am so alone. I am asking big, important questions that I've never asked before. And I need, like, I can't do this by myself. So... I know I have to stay there. I've signed up to be there for three years, and then I have to do a doctoral program. So I'm kind of panicked because this is a lot of time if this is going to all be so terrible. Um, So I hatched this escape plan. Um, The university sends one person abroad to Cambridge to study every year. So I said, this is my chance. I'm going to apply, and I was chosen. So I realized, like, I just have to... I just have to endure this year. And then I'm going to go to Cambridge, and obviously everything's going to be great when I'm in Britain. Um, So I, in the meantime, honestly, things got terrible, even worse than they were. Things, every, different parts of my body just start not working. Like, one day it'd be something, the next it'd be another thing. Um, I developed terrible insomnia, so I was only sleeping, like, two hours a night, And so I thought that there was something seriously wrong with me. And I went to my family doctor, and I had them run all these tests. All the tests came back fine. And my doctor looked at me and said, Abby, your body's trying to tell you something. You are really depressed, and we need to get you on some medication. And this was a relief, because I genuinely thought that I was suffering something terrible. But I actually was suffering something terrible. And it was a really difficult thing for me to hear this diagnosis of depression. um, Because at that time, no one in my world was talking about depression. So it felt like this, once again, this thing I'm dealing with all by myself that no one else deals with, which obviously is untrue. Um, But it was also really difficult because the depression required me to stop searching for what was wrong with my body and to instead sit with the reality that I couldn't keep doing what I was doing, that something in my life needed to change. But the big change didn't come as I anticipated. A few months before I was supposed to go to Cambridge, um, all student visas were suspended. And I still don't know what happened there, um, but I just know it was an indefinite thing that I could have waited on, but I didn't feel like I could risk having to go back to my university. Um, So thankfully, that summer, I'd gone back to my college town. I had made such amazing friends, one of them who you all know, um, 
And they were all seminary students at this local seminary in my college town in the middle of Tennessee where all of my college professors, my whole college career, had like quietly mocked as a place that you go not to go anywhere. And so I had been warned not to go to this seminary. But I had these amazing friends who I was learning with and I was worshiping with. And then I had this professor who I had, like, while I was at my university, I'd read all of his books. And I was just enthralled with the way that he read scripture. I wanted to continue to ask the big questions that he was asking. And so I did something incredibly risky and uncharacteristic of me. I gave up my scholarship. I gave up Cambridge. And I transferred to this small um, seminary. And a couple of months into the change, I, I was still just like surviving this depression. It was something that was manageable at this point. It was like, for me, I experienced it as just a despair that lingered right under the surface of everything. Um, but then there, there would be moments where all of a sudden I couldn't handle it anymore. And it, was, it felt like this tangible experience of despair Um, taking over me. And unfortunately, one of these moments happened to me while I was in a seminary class with all of my peers, with this one professor who I respected the most out of any person at that time. And I just start to cry. And I cry silently, but then when we go on our five-minute break, I begin to weep in the hallway. Um, And my professor finds me, and instead of going back to his class, he lets me cry on him. (laughs) Like, I'm now crying on my professor. And we start talking, and I tell him all of these things that I'm believing. I, I tell him, I made the biggest mistake of my life. I have thrown away everything that I've worked so hard for. And now I can't get it back. Like, I, there's no asking for your scholarship back. I, I think that I've disappointed God, that I've been unfaithful to this plan that God had for my life. Um, and I tell him all of these things. And I'm sure he says eloquent, beautiful things. But what I remember is him looking at me and directly identifying these lies and saying, no, your life is not done. No, God is still able to create even in this. No, you have not been unfaithful to Jesus. And I don't, I probably didn't believe him at that time, but it was like this, like this life raft for me that I got to hold on to. And so today it's not common for us to make formal oaths to one another, be it an oath of death or an oath of life. But Chris, my professor, and my friends joined me that year in ways that feel so true to how Ruth joins Naomi. They spoke words of life over me when I couldn't feel or see anything but despair. And they named the lies for what they were. And they helped me to slowly open myself up to a new future. That year was significant in exposing so many things so many ways that death was creeping into my life. 
It exposed the lie that I was believing that there's one best purpose for my life. That created crushing anxiety. Exposed the lie that productivity and achievement matters more than friendship or community. That created this deep and devastating isolation. And it exposed the lie that hard work and the suffering attached to that hard work is essential to following Jesus. I was living a life stripped of joy. So I tell this story to highlight how death comes at us at all different ways. It does come at us through violence, through poverty, through trauma and war, things that Ruth and Naomi knew firsthand. But it also comes to us through beliefs and values that strip us of joy, that strip us of the ability to delight and rest in community. It's the slow despair that cripples us. And what we see in Ruth and Naomi's relationship is a steadfast love that bears the weight of loss, a companionship that allows Naomi to endure what she thinks is going to destroy her. And ultimately, Ruth labors for Naomi's joy, just like my friends and my professor labored for my joy so that I could experience God's newness. What happens to Naomi at the end of the book of Ruth Remember, she has named herself Mara, one who is filled with bitterness. We find her at the end of the book of Ruth with her holding Ruth's child, Obed, who would become the grandfather of King David. And the book ends with the women of Bethlehem surrounding her and singing a blessing over Naomi, a blessing that names Ruth as better than seven sons, and a blessing that says, that Yahweh has given Naomi a redeemer. And that word redeemer means restorer of life or nourisher of your old age. And certainly we all have one ultimate redeemer, Jesus. But what if to be Jesus's followers is to love like Ruth, to love in ways that restore life, to love in ways that defy the lies of death, I'm not suggesting that we pick up this practice of making oaths to one another, but what if we're so captivated by Ruth, by a quiet but powerful leader, that we too start defying the lies of death, defying the lies of death in our families, in our communities, in our neighborhoods in this community? How might we live and love in ways that restore life? Can we show love in ways that defy the lies of death? So as we pray, I'd love for us to reflect on how God is speaking to us through Ruth, one of our mothers in the faith. Would you pray with me? God, our creator, I thank you that you are endlessly creating that our lives are not done and that whatever lie that we believe or that we see others believing, I thank you that there's joy knowing that you, you are present with us, that you join yourself to us. Just as Ruth joined herself to Naomi, Jesus, you call us friend. So God, I ask that you would be experienced here today.
that you would be experienced in our lives tomorrow, and that we would follow in the way of Ruth, that we would love in ways that restore life. Amen.